Hello, my lovely people, and welcome to The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast with your host, Monty. So this week, we will be talking about Hannigan's Wake, season seven, episode four, first aired October 28th, 1990. And the IMDb summary reads, Jessica reopens a 16-year-old murder case at the urging of a dying author who felt injustice was done. Now, they do have some trivia, but the trivia that I wrote down, I did not find in the episode. So yeah, since I don't understand it and I haven't been able to confirm it, we're not going to go over it. So it's saying that part of Jessica's dialogue was um, can also be found in a 1991 episode of Designing Women, but I don't know which what they're talking about. Like, I have no reference for it. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so let's get into the returners. So first we have Bradford Dillman, and we will recognize him from a few different episodes. So first he was Detective Lieutenant Simeon Kershaw from Murder to a Jazz Beat, season one, episode 12. Then he was Dennis McConnell, in Death Takes a Dive, season three, episode 16. Now he was the manager of the Irish shillelagh. Yeah, that was him. Then he was Avery Stone from Steal Me a Story, season four, episode eight. And I believe he was the producer of the movie based on the book that Jessica, that was stolen from Jessica, I think believe that's correct. And in this episode, he plays Deputy Police Commissioner Bradley Folks. Then we have Anthony Geary, and we will recognize him first as KGB Lieutenant Fyodor Alexandrov from From Russia with Blood, season five, episode 14. In this episode, he plays Eric Grant, and this is his last episode. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I I am now, I, I know what he looked like as the KGB agent, and having just watched Hannigan's Wake and knowing who Eric Grant is, I'm like, oh, I would have never guessed that. Facial hair makes a difference, and I think his hairline was also further up back then so just slightly like honestly but and he put on a little bit of weight so I would have never guessed that that was the same actor then we have Van Johnson who we will recognize first as Daniel O'Brien from Hit Run and Homicide season one episode six now the interesting thing about that episode the actor who plays his son, right? I was like, they look like they could be father and son. But obviously I I looked into that at that time and they're not. But the actor who played his son is the son of Eddie Albert, who is best known for Green Acres, if I remember correctly. And we have seen Eddie Albert, the father in... 
I think one, he was the husband in the body politic. And I think we may see him in one more if we haven't already. I think he's in two Murder, She Wrote episodes, but the son is just in Hit, Run, and Homicide. So fun fact there. We next saw Van Johnson as Elliot Robinson in Menace Anyone, season two, episode 20. So he was the father of the murderer. Yeah, that one was wild. That one was wild. Okay, Menace Anyone? I I can't say I dislike the episode. It was very disturbing. It was very disturbing. Uh, he played the heck out of that role. He was like, I, what we gonna do is we gonna fight for my daughter. I don't care, right, wrong, or indifferent, okay? Because he surely tried to murder somebody on her behalf. Okay, go back, watch that episode and listen to that review. Wild. In this episode, he plays Daniel Hannigan, And this is his last Murder, She Wrote episode. Now, it's also his last acting role. Although he, uh, I think he lives for another 10, maybe 15 or so years after this, but it's his last acting role. And one of the pieces of trivia actually was that he had to actually get into the casket, right? And so he complained that, it was a tight fit, right? He had to actually get in it and, you know, obviously like not breathe when the camera was in his face because he's supposed to be deceased. But he had a lot of color for somebody in his face, for somebody who was deceased after a long sickness. Now, <laughs> now they make reference to that. Like he, you would have never thought he was sick because uh, in real life he wasn't, thankfully. But then Angela Lansbury turns to him and says, well, the next time you're in a casket, you're, it won't make a difference because you're not going to feel anything. And I'm t- like, girl. <laughs> All right, Angela. She's like, listen, you're going to be dead next time. It don't matter. It's a tight fit now. What you complaining for? Like, <laughs> when the real thing happened, you ain't going to care. So next we have Guy Stockwell. And we will remember him as first as Dorn Von Stotter from Night of the Headless Horseman, season three, episode 11. He, I believe, was the horse keeper and he was also embezzling money because he had asked to borrow money and they were like, nah. So he was like, all right, I'm going to take it. But what was that? Or what? No. No, neither that headless horseman. He was no. I'm thinking of School for Scandal. I don't even know if he was in that one. Actually, no, he wasn't. Um, I'm thinking of somebody else. In Night of the Headless Horseman, I believe he his daughter was dating the dent the local dentist, and then she they broke up or she ran off with um. What's his face from the Brady Bunch? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. And who played the bully in this? And they ended up getting into a car accident and the young lady died. And homeboy from the Brady Bunch did not even care. Just came back to town living his life. 
as if he had not been driving drunk and caused the fatal accident. So, yeah, he was the father and he was trying to, oh no, he was stealing money. He was stealing money from the school where he kept the horses, right? Because he needed the money to pay for a private investigator to find out and get proof of what happened to his daughter, that he didn't think it was just a regular car accident. He wanted to know who was driving. That's what it was, yeah. So it was both of those. He was stealing money and it was to get a private investigator to get proof that the dude from the Brady Bunch is the one who was was driving drunk and caused the accident that killed his daughter. That was him. We next saw him as Elliot, as Elmo Banner in Who Threw the Barbital in Mrs. Fletcher's Chowder, season four, episode 12. And yeah, yeah, he played a brute. He was terrible in not acting wise, but as a person, the character was a terrible person. But in this episode, he redeems himself. He also has not a lot of screen time, but he completely redeems himself. He is retired detective, uh, retired lieutenant, sorry, Bert Kravitz. And this is his last Murder, She Wrote episode. And finally, we have Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. And we will recognize him as General Marcus Havemeyer from The Last Flight of the Dixie Damsel, season five, episode seven. Now he was the general who was being relocated to overseas. I forget, maybe it was Japan, I forget. But overseas and all his furniture and his wife's Cadillac, right, were on the Dixie Damsel when it got lost in the storm and and all of that. Yeah, so that was him, General Havemeyer. In this episode, he plays Richard Thompson Grant. Yes. Okay. So just a very distinguished man who gets what he wants. Both episodes. Okay. (laughs) So let's get into the characters and then the episode. So we have Deputy Police Commissioner Bradley Folks, Eric Grant, Phyllis Thurlow, Daniel Hannigan, Stephen Thurlow, retired Detective Bert Kravitz, Ernie Dolan, Richard Thompson Grant, Jonathan Barish, Eddie Folks, Victor Impolitari, Madeline Madge, and apparently, like, there is a Martin Thurlow, but I don't know if he's listed in the characters. Because, <laughs> like, y'all understand why he's important in a minute. So, the episode opens with Jessica coming into her house and the phone's ringing. She picks up and it's a call from Phyllis informing her that Daniel Hannigan has passed away. His um, his maid, I think she said, whoever, came in and found him uh, that he had passed away while working at his desk. He's a writer, as... as the IMDb summary outlined. So Phyllis also asked if Jessica had had an opportunity to read the research that Daniel had given her. 
And she said, and Jessica says that she has read almost all of it. And so Phyllis is like, okay, great. We can talk about it when you get here. So we then see Jessica going back to whatever files that Daniel had provided her. And we then go into a flashback, which apparently is from only one week before. Okay, one week before. That, that's sad. But, because I, I was wondering, they don't tell you until like later, unless it was across the screen and I was taking notes and I didn't see it. But we find out later, when I say later, I mean like 10 minutes into this, I think, that she was only there a week before when this flashback happens. So she's meeting Daniel Hannigan for the first time in person. She knows of him. He knows of her as authors. And we find out that Daniel, who we don't know exactly what type of books he writes, but they're not murder mysteries. Okay, so they're not those. He doesn't write novels, it seems like. It seems like maybe he writes nonfiction, um, that type that type of book, but he has two Pulitzer Prizes, two, two, okay? So he's well-regarded within the writing world and the world outside of that. Obviously, people are buying his books. And so he tells Jessica that he's writing a murder mystery, but not the frothy things that you write. And I'm like, listen, Now, I understand that he is, I don't even think he's older than Angela. Well, no, he is older than Angela Lansbury was at the time. Like, honestly. But he he is low-key rude this entire time, okay? Because what he's asking for is he wants Jessica to write the book that he has been researching. It is about a real murder case And he feels that there has been a miscarriage of justice, which spoiler, there has been. But two things are playing against Daniel. One, he is not a writer of murder mysteries, although he's saying that it is a true story. It is actually still happening now. The miscarriage of justice is that someone who did not commit the murder is currently in prison for that murder, that he, if he writes nonfiction, and apparently what Jessica refers to his type of writing later on is that he has a talent for exposing the dark side of establishments. So he would have been able to write this book. But I think the more pressing issue is that he unfortunately is not long for this world. He now believe his doctors say that he at best has a month, but probably not even that. And he has now come to terms with that they are correct. Like he is not long for this world. He's confined to a wheelchair, but he is not bedridden. He's not on hospice, but whatever illness he has, right, um, it is terminal. So he 
wants Jessica to write this book. He wants her to first look at his research, see if he if she comes to the same conclusion as he did and to write the book. OK, so I'm like, you <laughs> you're low key rude and disrespectful, you know, about Jessica and her work. Right. Like on the one hand, he respects her because she has been very successful, but he's also like frothy things and other stuff that he says that are really condescending. Yet he has chosen her to write this book. Yeah. Okay. After all of that, he has chosen her to write this book because he believes that she's the best one to do it. And so Jessica's like, I ain't about to write this book. Like, I don't, sir, sir, no. And he says, okay, just, can you please, well, before we get to that, um, they tell us what the true murder mystery is. Now, Phyllis, I don't know. Like, I thought that she was his, maybe she is his personal assistant. Um, yeah, because he's she's not she doesn't live in the house with him, but she seems to be a caretaker, but more than a regular caretaker, not like in a romantic situation, but that they're more friendly than employee employer. I don't know how to put it, but she she seems like his uh, like a confidant a little bit because you know he he's the type that don't be trusting women, so. Like, <laughs> Honestly, he talked to Phyllis a little crazy too. So Phyllis explains that her brother Martin was accused of killing his wife, but he in fact did not. And Daniel says that his conviction was orchestrated by Lydia, which was Martin's wife, by her father, Richard Thompson Grant. Now, Daniel then goes in to explain what is believed to have happened the day that Lydia died. So Lydia Grant Thurlow was apparently beaten to death and thrown into a glass break front. Martin was the only suspect, the playboy gold digger who only married her for her money. And they have a witness who observed, uh, Martin coming home drunk around 9 p.m. They heard a loud argument. Now, this is a big house, okay? This is a wealthy neighborhood, right? Well, maybe upper middle class. Like, I don't know. The houses were close enough, right? <laughs> like, they, they were close enough. Um, so a neighbor was looking out the window and heard a loud argument at about 9, 15 p.m. and distinctly remembers that it was Martin and Lydia's voices or recognized it to be Martin and Lydia's voices. So I'm like that those houses had to be, well, he, the window was not open when we saw this in the flashback of the flashback. Right. So I'm like, how, how loud was this argument? Were their windows open with a door open? How did you distinctly hear their recognize their voices? Now it doesn't seem like, she could understand what they were saying because that would have been really unrealistic, but that she recognized their 
voices. Then sometime a little later, she sees a light flicker, then go out. And shortly after that, hears glass breaking. So she calls the police at this point and the police get there in, I think he said 15 minutes, something like that, to find Lydia dead on the living room floor, broken glass and blood everywhere. The house was completely locked up. The front door, the back door, the windows were all locked. And Martin was found, passed out in their bedroom, and their three-year-old son was asleep in his room. Martin took a lie detector test and he passed. However, the results were mysteriously, uh, mysteriously disappeared. And Daniel believes that Lydia's brother, Eric, is the one who actually murdered her because apparently, and that Richard, their father, was covering it up because obviously he's lost his daughter and he doesn't want his son, who if he did murder her, to basically destroy the family's name. And yeah, this is when Daniel explains, like, I don't have long to live, but this book needs to be written. This injustice needs to be corrected. And Jessica's like, I don't know about that. Okay, like, for one, you're super condescending. Like, honestly, (laughs) she didn't say that. But like, I would have been like, I'm not writing this book. Like, sir, no, I don't care if it's Phyllis's brother. You seem very nice as well, Phyllis. But like, none of this is my business, nor do I care about it. That's terrible about Martin. But why are you coming to me? Okay, if the police ain't gonna take this, I don't know what you want me to do about this. Call Harry McGraw. (laughs) Call Michael Haggerty. Like, I don't know what you want me to do about this. And so Daniel was like, please, just at least read the research. Just just take that and, you know, make your own, make your decision after you've reviewed it. So she's like, okay, I'll do that. Then now we're back to present day. And Jessica has made her way to Philadelphia, Philadelphia, uh, to the funeral home. That's where she's meeting Phyllis. And we meet Jonathan, who is the owner of the funeral home or the manager. And he meets Jessica at the door. Well, Jessica walks in because the door is unlocked and he gets up and he greets her and says, oh, well, Mr. Hannigan is not ready for viewing. It's whatever the times. And then Phyllis comes in. It's like, oh, no, no, no. She's okay. She can, she's with me. And turns to Jonathan and says, listen, this is not the music that we requested. And Jonathan, who is very stuffy and, um, yeah, okay. That's not great for business. Like, I understand that you want to give off the essence of prestige, but I'm like, this is a terrible time in people's lives. You know what I mean? Like you seem cold and unwilling to, I don't want to say bend the rules, but unwilling to fulfill request of the family and friends of someone who died during this traumatic time in their lives, because that's not what 
the family funeral home is about. Like that's, it would be different if they were like, hey, we want him displayed sitting on a throne of swords, a la Game of Thrones. Okay, okay. That I could see a funeral home saying, what we're not going to do is that. You can find somebody else. All money ain't good money. We're not about to do that. That's too much. Or something that's really above and beyond uh, what a typical funeral home would provide. But the music, but the music, he was like, Irish music isn't really what we do here, sir. They've rented out basically the entire place because this is a very large wake, okay? Because he he is very famous. Low-key, high-key. He has a lot of friends. He has a lot of fans, okay? And he is, you know, I'm sure the family and friends, the estate, I should say, because I don't think he has a wife and kids, So the estate is paying good money probably to rent out the entire funeral home so there's no other funerals there. And you're like, the music though. Like, I would have been like, you know what? Wrap his body up, roll him out the back because we we sending him someplace else because what we're not going to do is you're not going to be out here disrespecting us talking about... uh, Irish music isn't what we do. Excuse me, sir. It is not like they're asking you to, even if they were asking you to play death metal because this person was a manager of a, or owned um, a music station that only played death metal. You know what I mean? Like I could, and that was what he was known for. So he's in a suit, he in regular clothes, but there's going to be people who have uh, interesting outfits, um, tattoos, hair colors, all of that, who are going to be coming in through here. But the same, the green money that we paid you, you need to sit down and shut up. We're not throwing things around. We're not asking you to break down walls or do something that's illegal. We're just asking you to play a specific type of music for the guests who are dealing, are grieving the loss of somebody. Like, I don't even understand how you have the audacity to, to be like Irish music. Like, (laughs) Like, what is the deal? Anyway, so she was like, now I wouldn't have done this. She was like, whatever the, he gave specific, very specific instructions about what he wanted at his wake and whatever the music budget is, double it. But I want to hear Danny boy. And if you can't accommodate that, then we'll go someplace else. So then he, he doesn't even respond. He just walks off. My thing is I wouldn't have offered him double. I would have just said from jump. Now, what you going to do, you're either going to play this Irish music, including Danny Boy, on repeat, because Homeboy's name is Daniel, and he is Irish. So what we're going to do 
is have that on repeat. And I mean, I want the remixes. I want the original. Okay. I want the acapella version. I want the instrumental version. I mean, you need to find every different version in existence to play throughout this wake. Okay. That's what, that's what you're going to do. Because if you cannot accommodate that, if you cannot find CDs to accommodate this, okay? Because remember, it's 1990. So it's not like you could pull up Spotify and just, you know, put on a, find Danny Boy and then put on a radio station <laughs> with that on there, you know? Um, but you could go out and find a CD with it on there and probably has other versions on it. Remember when they used to do that? You get a single and it had a bunch of different versions of that single on it. He could have found that. I would not have paid him a dime more. Because I'm t- I would have been like, I- I'm telling you, you close the casket, wrap these flowers up, put them in the back of the truck. I'm about to get a truck. I'm going to go get, a- get the florist to come pick these up to take them to a funeral home that's going to accommodate us. No, wrap this up. No, that- that's it. That's it. The contract has been voided because you cannot... Uh, adhere to this contract. You can't do the request as specified on the contract. We're leaving. We're leaving. Like, I don't know what you think this is, but that's not how you run a business. And when I tell you by the end of this week, you're going to be shut down because I'm going to tell everybody how condescending you are in this time of people's needs. And you think that you're better. And you think that this is the type of service that people need when they're going through the worst part of worst time in their life. You think that this is okay. It's not. And I hope you understand that your family business is going to be shut down because of you and your attitude. Okay, no, get the, get the cat, close the casket, close the casket. I'm wrap these flowers up. I am going to go and I'm going to go to my car phone because you know, a homegirl got a car phone. I'm going to go to my car phone and I'm going to call up the next biggest funeral home and we'll have it there. Okay. Because you can't seem to accommodate. And I shouldn't even have to ask you twice. The fact that I had to ask you twice, you should be giving me money back, but you know what? I'm going to get all my money back and I'm going to shut this place down. Okay. Thank you. You have a great day. God bless. Jessica, let's go. Like, <laughs> I mean, like close the casket, roll it on out back. We going to have another hearse from another place in two minutes because our money And it's not even like they were asking, it's not even like they were asking for anything above and beyond what is decent, what's in order, what is basic, basic music choice, basic. Anyway, I'm just just like highly disturbed by the fact that this isn't uh, an exclusive country club where you can, you expect to see the staff even being a little snooty, you know, to keep up airs about, you know, the country club and the exclusivity and stuff like that. This is a funeral home. Someone has died, whether expectedly because they were ill. It's never enough time. It's never honestly and truly expected even if they're like, you got 10 minutes left, like it's still not, it's, it it still never is enough, but this is somebody, the worst 
point in people's lives that they have lost somebody that they love. And you're going to act like this? I am personally offended, okay? Jonathan could fall down some stairs, like not die, but fall down some stairs to humble him. That I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. You're trash for treating grieving people this way. And the fact that they're paying this type of money and he's still talking, is still dealing with her like that, that he didn't even have the decency to respond to her request and just walked away? No, no. Then the people who are getting a basic package, all right, are probably getting treated worse. No, a whole flight of steps. I mean, and the corner, like a whole seven hit the platform and then another seven. That would be too good for him. Anyway, so we then go into the room where Daniel is. And I promise you, he wouldn't be there for the next 30 minutes. He wouldn't be. We would have left because you're not going to talk to people like that. You're not going to act like that. And you run a business. Okay. Okay. Okay, so (laughs) anyway, so we go and we see Daniel in the casket and it's actually Van Johnson alive in the casket pretending to be dead. Like how, how difficult, you know, like how morbid, like at least you're not in the, uh, in a morgue. I think that would have been even more difficult, even if the morgue was built for, the show, I don't, you know what I mean? It was a stage. Still, that's, that's very uncomfortable. But he, he does it. He holds his breath. Okay. <laughs> now, when I tell you that is a, he is a pretty in the face man. Like he, he has feminine yet masculine features. So he's like, I don't know if you would call him, he's pretty. Right? <laughs> like he is. And so he's just like there. There's still a little rosiness in his cheeks because he's alive. So I'm like, y'all couldn't put like white powder makeup on him to make him actually look deceased. But yeah, so they're like, oh, the funeral home did a great job. Like, no, they didn't because he's alive. That's why he just looks like he's asleep. Now there are definitely funeral homes that can even if the person was sickly, do their makeup such that they do look like they're sleeping, like they still have color in their face and stuff like that. And it's all artificial and based on the skill of the person who does their makeup. But here he has the benefit of being alive and just naturally rosy in the face. So I'll put it this way. This is the crazy part. He looked paler and more sickly in the wheelchair in the flashback when he was alive than he did in the casket. But I'm guessing it's because he's holding his breath that his face is turning, is brightening up and turning red. It's probably from holding his breath. And that's, that's probably why. So anyway, we find out that the service, the funeral service will be Friday at 10 at St. St. Anthony's Cathedral and the Cardinal himself will be officiating. They've received a bunch of flowers and telegrams, even one from the White House. 
apparently he and the president were uh, acquainted. Who knew? But he's also a Pulitzer Prize winner. He apparently has written on the Vietnam War. So there, that might just be a, a taste of the type of writing he did that would have garnered him attention and support and fans that um, are in high places. So perhaps his um, writings were in line with certain politicians, you know, not to garner any favors, but just that's how the research came out. So then we have Bradley Folks arrive. So he's the deputy commissioner of police. And he was also one of the investigators of Lydia's murder. And so he's like, yeah, it was an open and shut case. Um, A terrible situation, terrible situation, but it was pretty clear that it was the husband. And Jessica says, well, I don't necessarily agree, but, you know, we are where we are. And so Bradley, well, I'll call him Brad from now on. Brad uh, asked Jessica if she'd like to go to lunch. She must be hungry. And Phyllis is like, yeah, I don't think so. And Jessica says, no, no, I'll, I'll go. It will be, it'll likely be helpful. Like basically giving uh, Phyllis the heads up that I'm still looking into this. I'm still trying to decide whether I'm going to write the book. And I think it would be good to have a sit down with the investigating detective. So at lunch, Bradley and Jessica speak. Um, and Brad is just like, yeah, it, it was the husband. And unfortunately, Phyllis is just so determined to n- not want to believe it was her brother, but she's very wrong. And Jessica says, well, why do you think she's so wrong? Now, I've read the reports and the articles and everything. And why wasn't, why don't you think it could have been Eric? He had come to borrow money earlier that day. They got into a terrible fight and he threatened her. So perhaps he returned to steal the money. She caught him and he pushed her, you know, or they got into another fight and he killed her. So Brad is like, back then Eric was addicted to drugs. He was a junkie. Okay. And I don't have any sympathy for addicts at all. And if there was any chance that it could have been Eric, I would have personally like thrown him in jail and thrown the book at him and made sure that he was convicted because I have no sympathy for addicts, but he had, he had a rock solid alibi. So as they're sitting there, um, Jessica brings up Eric's father, Eric and Lydia's father. And so Brad was like, oh, well, you can ask him yourself. So Richard Thompson Grant arrives at lunch and he says that Hannigan was a very good writer even when he was careless with his facts. So now at this point, Jessica's back is up against the wall. Now she's, um, Hannigan is not her friend, right? And he was low key condescending to her when asking her to write this book. And she is not completely sure that um, 
his determination that Eric Grant was the murderer is correct. But as soon as Richard starts to speak negatively about Dan, she, Jessica takes up, right? Her hackles raise up and she's like, oh, what we're not going to do, what we're not going to do is be out here talking crazy about this two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, okay? And so she says that he did have a flair for exposing the dark side of the establishment, and so then Richard says something about careless fact, careless, careless with his facts. Jessica says, well, it's amazing how many lawsuits he's won. I don't believe he has ever lost a lawsuit. So guess he was right. Okay. <laughs> Checkmate. And so Richard said, well, his death prevented the only blot that would have been on his reputation because if he would have published a book pointing Eric out as the murderer of his sister and me as obstructing justice, he would have lost everything, including the proverbial shirt off his back. And Jessica says, well, that sounds uncomfortably like a threat. To which Brad is like, I'm sure he didn't mean it that way. I'm sure Mr. Grant didn't mean it that way. Because mind you, he's the deputy commissioner of police. Okay? Like, if a threat occurs in his presence, now it's not illegal to threaten people in person. Don't do that, because no. But what he did is not technically illegal. Maybe it is in Pennsylvania. It's not in New York. But... He's like, hey, 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 I don't want to be a witness. I don't want to be a witness. I don't want to be a witness. And so he's trying to save Richard. But Richard is like, uh, no, that is exactly what I, how I meant it. I'm just letting this little lady, okay, know what she's getting herself into if she proceeds. Then he proceeds to say, you've only heard half of the story. I'm at your disposal anytime, anywhere, if you want to hear my side. Now, the fact is, I don't want to hear your side. I need to hear from Eric. That's what I need to hear from. You weren't there. So your side of the story means nothing. So the next scene, we're at a private airport and Eric Grant is arriving with Madeline. Okay, and so Richard is there waiting in the limo to pick him up. And Eric is surprised because usually he'll just his father will just send a car to pick him up. But um, Richard wanted to speak with him. So he introduces Madeline to Richard and he's like, what's your last name? And she's like Smythe with the long eye. Did she say a long eye instead of a? Yeah, she said with the long eye, Smythe. Uh, it used to be Schmidt, but I changed it for professional reasons. I'm like, girl, what? You got a whole spiel? And so Richard is like, nice to meet you, but I'm sorry that you made this trip for nothing. Eric is going to be involved with some family business over the next few days. So he, you got to go. Uh, then he speaks to the pilot. Can you please fly her back and give her a few hundred dollars for her taxi back to the hotel? So Madeline is like, Eric, you promised to show me the Liberty Bell. 
And he's like, I'll talk to you later. She was like, Eric. She he was like, I'll talk to you later. So she literally huffs and walks away, stops at the plane, turns around, huffs again, and then turns and gets on the plane. And so once she gets on the plane, Richard and Eric start to walk towards the car. And he tell, Richard turns to Eric and is like, isn't that illegal? Okay, isn't that against the law? And because obviously um, he had flown her from New Jersey because he said, I'm sorry, you had to fly from Atlantic City, so which is in New Jersey. So flew from New Jersey to Pennsylvania, which honestly, y'all could have drove. But okay, you got a private jet, I guess. Or your Eric's father has a private jet. So I guess. And... <laughs> So yeah, flying someone over state lines for the purpose of uh, paying them for sexual activity is illegal. And so Eric was like, he shrugs like, yeah, it was. You're welcome. (laughs) Get her out of here. She's clearly a sex worker. You didn't even know her last name and you got her on the plane to go to go home Apparently he was going there for a week. He wasn't going for Hannigan's funeral, but just, I guess, coming home to visit, I guess. So anyway, so Richard says, well, Hannigan has died. And so Eric is like, yeah, that was all over the news. Like what, you know, he died and with him, the book died. And Richard says, no, someone else has taken over. And it's a tenacious lady with a sharp mind. And I don't think we can ignore her. That was a very glowing statement from Richard. Much more glowing (laughs) than anything that Hannigan said to Jessica. So Eric says, well, I didn't kill my sister. And Richard says, I've always believed that I've had to. And that's the thing, like he has, there's no way that he could have even had the inkling that his son had murdered his daughter. I don't think that for anybody, honestly, for anybody, that he would have been able to fathom that because they grew up together, even though he had a drug problem, even though Eric was in the throes of a drug addiction at the time, a really bad drug addiction when we find out how much he owed his drug dealer. But still, that's his child. You know, Richard may come across as, you know, a man who gets what he wants, but his children are different people, right? They're individuals. They make their own choices. And unfortunately, the choices that Eric made were at this point, when his uh, sister was murdered, his decisions were based on his addiction and getting money in order to get more drugs. Okay. So if his father, his father would not have been able to support him if he even let himself think that his son murdered his daughter because he would have lost both of them. We don't know where their mother is. I'm guessing she passed away at some point. And it looks like maybe they were raised by Richard. Um, So he would have been all, Eric was all that Richard had left family-wise. 
And it's clear that family meant something to Richard. Like it wasn't all about business. Like he did have, um, he did care about his kids to whatever degree, right? And he couldn't let his son go, even though his son was a really bad addict and possibly could have done this because of his addiction, that he wasn't in his right mind and stuff like that. But there's no way that Richard could have believed that if he wanted to keep his own sanity, you know? So the next scene, we are at Hannigan's wake and Stephen is speaking with his aunt Phyllis and he doesn't believe his father is innocent, nor does he believe that there's any chance that Eric could have murdered his mother, Eric's sister and Stephen's mother. So he clearly was raised in Richard's home, okay? Because his mom was murdered. His father was convicted of her murder. And it seems like Stephen has a close relationship with Richard, his grandfather, and some relationship with Eric, but it seems like his grandfather raised him. And now it's been 16 years. He was three at the time. So now he's 19. He's in college. I'm surprised that Phyllis didn't, wasn't granted custody of Stephen. You know what I mean? Like that's Martin's sister. That's his aunt. But he went to the grandfather because the way he's talking to Phyllis, he don't call her aunt Phyllis or nothing. Calls her Phyllis by her first name which indicates to me that she didn't raise him because I'm not saying he would have called her mom because he had a mother, even though she died 16 years ago. And, um, it seems like they are estranged. And I think probably because Phyllis was so dead set on the fact that Martin did not kill Lydia, that maybe she wasn't a good candidate for, raising Stephen. I guess, I just think that's very odd that he wouldn't have gone to her, but maybe he knew the grandfather better. Maybe, well, obviously the grandfather had more money, but I don't know. Phyllis seems like she's wealthy as well. Her house is very nice. I don't know. Anyway, so I don't know. Maybe Phyllis is, um, was Hannigan's publisher or editor or something like that. Maybe she wasn't his caretaker. I don't know. Cause she had, she didn't live in that house. She had her own very nice house. So yeah, I don't know. Unless that was Hannigan's house. I don't remember. I wasn't looking close enough to determine if it was two separate houses or if she had her own large estate as well. So Jessica arrives and she steps aside to speak with Phyllis. And she said that she spoke with Bradley and it was very informative, but she was upset with Phyllis because Phyllis revealed to the press that Jessica was following up on Hannigan's book and would be writing it, even though Jessica had not made a decision yet. And Jessica was very upset about this. Phyllis is like, 
well, you know, basically I wanted to push you into doing this. I wanted to keep the story in the, you know, in the forefront of the media, et cetera, et cetera. And while they're having this discussion, Danny's friends, well, Hannigan's friends start singing Danny Boy, right? And there are like 30 or 40 men who are singing Danny Boy. And Jonathan is trying to quiet them down. I'm like, how dare you? Okay, how dare you? Because I think the second viewing was like 7 to 9 p.m. And they weren't even like screaming. They were singing loudly, but not like the, like the neighbors would hear it or something like that. And the fact is that this was an Irish wake and some wakes tend to be, depending on the culture, some are more somber, some are more energetic, um, you know, and things like that. So let them sing Danny Boy. His name is Daniel and he's Irish and he wanted Danny Boy to be played. Let his friends mourn him by singing Danny Boy. They weren't tearing stuff up. They weren't falling out. They weren't, you know, fighting or anything like that. They were singing Danny Boy. Who, who would they have been disturbing? They're his friends. If there were people there who were uncomfortable, that's on them. Okay, they weren't his close friends, clearly. They weren't his family, clearly. So what? who are you trying to hush? The person who put this together is the one who requested Danny Boy and invited all of these people to the wake. So Jonathan is trash. Anyway, so... They're singing Danny Boy in the background and Jessica and Phyllis are still trying to have their conversation. And Jessica says that she's read through the research and she agrees that the case against Martin was too pat, too easy, but there was no hard evidence that it was Eric who murdered his sister and that the research does not appear to be that of the Pulitzer Prize winning Daniel Hannigan, there were a lot of assumptions not backed up by hard facts. Like he repeats himself, you know, multiple times, stuff like that, which side note, sounds similar to not completely the same, but similar to Trevor Hudson in Trevor Hudson's legacy and the notes of the novel that he left that were clearly there were a lot of ramblings. It didn't come together here. It wasn't as bad as that, where it was just nonsensical for 99% of it, which was only like 10 pages and maybe two audio cassettes of him rambling here. It was much more of the old Daniel Hannigan versus one who had been distracted by illness, you know, but it wasn't a slam dunk. It's definitely Eric. Here's the proof. So Phyllis is like, so you're going to break your promise. And Jessica was like, no, 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 no. I only said that I would read the notes and I did. And I'm not convinced that there's a book here that, you know, she's like, 
well, he was so sure, you know, can you please don't quit now? My, my brother has nothing left, basically. And a murderer could be walking free. So Jessica doesn't respond. She sighs, but I think the scene ends, but I think she's gonna continue to look into it at least. And she does, because the next scene, she's at the library looking at microfiche of the articles on the murder. And Stephen, Lydia and Martin's son, who was three years old at the time, finds Jessica in the library. And he basically says that his uncle Eric didn't kill his mother. And Jessica asks, well, was he there that night? And Steven says, no. She's like, oh, you remember? I didn't think you would because you were only like three. And he's like, no, I don't really remember, but there's no way that he could have killed my mother. But you believe your father killed your mother. But it's also because he has not seen his father. He has cut off all contact with his father. And he's being raised by his grandfather. His uncle has gotten off drugs. And so even though he seems to just be like, walking, I don't want to say like lounging through life. Like, do you see, he looked, he looked like he had been through it. Okay. But I think that's low key, a bit of guilt. I think that's guilt on Eric. Now he, uh, spoiler, he did not kill his sister. He did not directly kill her. Okay. I'll say it like that. But I think he feels some level of guilt because you have to remember the last time he spoke with his sister before she was murdered, he threatened her. He argued with her for money. Okay. So he's probably carrying that. Like I never, the last thing I said to my sister was a threat. You know, it don't, he doesn't work for the family company. He didn't come like he was a professional of any sort. He is just, uh, a man who has a rich father and hasn't had to work for anything, right? So Stephen got to know Uncle Eric as a sober person. You know what I mean? And spending his father's, Stephen's grandfather and Eric's father's money, you know, dealing with sex workers and all of that, you know, the fun uncle. Um, so there's no way that this fun uncle could have killed his mother. But this man that I don't know, who came home drunk that night, I believe that he murdered my mother. If the police say he murdered my mother, if my grandfather says he murdered my mother, and the only other option is my uncle Eric, who I know, and I've known for the last 16 years as a sober person, I can't imagine that he would do this. So Jessica says, well, back then he was, had a really bad addiction. Do you think it's possible that he might have been capable of striking your mother and then blacking out and blocking the whole situation out? And so Stephen believes this because you can see he, either he has considered this or he is considering that. But he says, I had come here to ask you to leave it alone, but this has been a waste of your time and mine and then leaves because I think he really is having second thoughts about maybe his uncle did. He was in the pit of his 
he was at the lowest possible point in his addiction that maybe he did, you know, and he blocked it out because he was either coming down off of drugs or he was high on drugs. You know, he, he's a different, the person I know is a completely different person than the person he was when his sister was murdered 16 years before. So the next scene, Jessica is waiting for Brad at outside his office. And so they go in to speak and she asks, who's Jr. And Bradley's like, Jr. It's like, yes, I've been reading through this. He appears to be a drug pusher that Eric Grant owed money. And so Brad is like, I don't really know. I got the case a week after the murder. The original detective was reassigned to South Philly and I, I was assigned the case. And so Jessica says, oh, well, can I speak with that lieutenant? And he said, well, he retired eight years ago and I have no idea where he is. And the issue about JR, I think, you know, it was something for the papers to, to sell, right? In a story to sell papers, basically one of the wealthy families in the area having a drug addicted son and his drug dealer is, makes for, you know, juicy subject, which will sell papers. I don't really think that he was involved. If Eric had been involved, I would have thrown him and the drug dealer in jail. I have no, um, I basically, he's like, I'm disgusted by drug addicts and I, I would not have had any sympathy or thought twice if it had been Eric, I wouldn't have spared him, you know? And so he then gets a call from his secretary, Madge, and apparently there is an anonymous note that was delivered regarding Hannigan's death. And the note says that Hannigan was poisoned to shut him up. Check the digitalis level. So the next scene, we're at Richard's house. And Richard is getting the call from Brad telling him about the note. And Stephen is there with him. And so he tells Stephen. And Stephen is like at the point where he's like, I don't know what to believe. I feel like you're hiding things from me. Who is Jr.? And Richard's like, what? JR? Because he's, he's not putting two and two together. He, they're having two different conversations at this point. So Stephen says, Uncle Eric's drug dealer um, back then, he, he spoke about him a few times, but now he can't seem to remember, right? So Richard says, he was just some street guy who Eric owed money to. He was apparently afraid to come to me for the money. So he went to your mother. It happened to be the same day she died, but there's no connection between the two. And so Stephen says, well, where is JR now? To which Richard says, he disappeared. You Surprisingly, I did look into that angle. And he then says, after your mother died, I sent Eric overseas to a rehabilitation clinic. And when he came back a year later, there was no talk of JR. He was a distant memory and he's been clean ever since. 
So the next scene, Jessica has found Lieutenant Kravitz or Bert, as he likes to be called. And he's working at a restaurant, you know, just doing busy work to to keep him active. It's not like a job job. (laughs) He's just like cleaning tables, you know, at a bar. Uh, Maybe he makes drinks. I don't know. But he uh, or he owns it. But I think he just works there to, you know, he's retired I don't know if he wanted to retire because it doesn't seem like he had a plan. And now this is his plan or his wife is like, you got to get out the house. You can't just be sitting around this house. I don't care if you're retired. I don't care if you've been a police officer for 47 years and, you know, just been working hard morning to night. And now you just want to spend your retirement sitting in this chair. No, because you'll die. Okay. You got to get up. You got to see people. You got to do stuff. And so... (laughs) He's working at this bar. So he's like, oh, I love talking about old cases. Yes, definitely. Let me get you a coffee. And, you know, do you want coffee, beer? What, you know, and we'll we'll have a chat. So we find out that Brad volunteered to take over the case once um, Bert was reassigned to South Philadelphia. And Jessica was like, do you think that that was by design? And he's like, oh, you think that someone was trying to get me off the case? But the fact is, Brad and I saw the case the same way that the husband did it. We then find out about more about Brad and his background. So his son was an undercover narcotics police officer who got killed in a raid years back, right? And... That if drugs were involved, Brad never would have gone after the husband. He would have gone after Eric or whoever the drug-related defendant was. And that Brad came from a family of cops. Like his father was a police officer. His father's father was a police officer. His son was a police officer. So even so Bert is like, even though Brad knew who to suck up to in order to move his career towards being the deputy commissioner and likely the commissioner at some point, he was still a cop's cop at the end of the day. Like he, he believed in the, the badge, right? So he wouldn't have easily been persuaded to cover up if, Richard Grant came to him and was like, you need to do this. He, he would not have folded to that um, because doing right was more important to him. Okay. Okay. So as they're leaving, we see somebody shoot out the window of the bar as Jessica and Bert are standing outside by the taxi that Jessica is about to, to leave in. So they call Brad because I think it might have been Bert who called Brad, but the police are called, obviously, and Brad gets a call. He's having a dinner party at his house and he he gets the address and he leaves, you know, tells his wife, give my apologies. But someone shot at that writer. Um, I think she's okay, but I'm going to go down to see what happened. So. He goes down there. He speaks with Bert, who's like, oh, it's been a long time. It's good to see you. Um, He's like, how's she doing? It's like, she's fine. Um, How did this all happen? He was like, 
well, she came looking for me. You know, <laughs> like, so we, we were talking about the, you know, about the, the case, the third, third low case. And so Brad is like, well, what did you tell her? It's like that it was the husband who did it. And that, that was that. So he's like, oh, okay, thanks. And, um, he then goes over to speak with Jessica who is fine. She was a, obviously a little shaken, but she's like, they weren't trying to shoot and kill me. They shot at the plate glass window that was 10 to 20 feet away from me. They were across the street. I think it was a warning, not an actual attempt on my life. And so she also says, like, I don't think that, no, ask had they got the digitalis results back. And Brad said no. And she says, I think they're going to say the same thing as they did before. I don't think he was poisoned. I think somebody is doing this um, to basically keep the keep us looking into the Thurlow murder. And she then says, I believe I know who's responsible for the anonymous note and the shots this evening. So the next scene, they go to Phyllis's house and she, again, like, I don't, I can't tell if this is Hannigan's house that she also lives in or if it's her own house. I automatically thought it was her own house, but if it's Hannigan's house, okay. But she says, oh, you just woke me from a sound sleep. Like, girl, your hair ain't even mussed up. Okay. <laughs> not, not a hair out of place for real, for real. Okay. Your face still has makeup on it. You know, the no makeup, makeup look. And no one, you don't have pillow lines on your face, nothing. You weren't in no dead sleep. You didn't have a drool situation or anything. Okay, girl, nobody believes that you were awoken from a dead sleep. Okay, but okay. So she lets them in and basically Jessica um, lies to her, okay, <laughs> to get a confession. And Brad hops right onto it, okay? So Jessica is like, what if I told you that someone described the car that was driving away as a red compact um, station wagon, whatever she said, and which is obviously what Phyllis drives. And Brad said, I, I touched the hood of your car when we came in and it was still hot. And Jessica looks to the side like, oh, he, he got the memo. He, he got the memo. He see what I'm trying to do. So Phyllis at this point admits to the note because she was trying to buy time, knowing that it would have taken time for them to get the blood results back. And she shot at the window because she wanted to convince Jessica that there had been a murderer who was on the loose and she was getting close to them. So they were sending this warning. So that's why she, she did those things. And she's like, now I've messed it up. Now my brother's going to be in prison forever because now no one's going to believe me because I, I did these things. So the next scene, we're at the funeral and Brad's at the funeral. Um, Jonathan is just losing his ever loving mind. And Phyllis is like looking for Jessica. I guess, I don't know if she was supposed to, I'm guessing Jessica was supposed to say something or whatever. But Jonathan comes up to her and says, I got a call from Mrs. Fletcher. She said to go ahead, something, an emergency came up. 
Um, so you should go ahead with the funeral service without her. So Phyllis is clearly upset about this. Like she's already sad because like I said, where they left off was that she believed that she messed everything up by the anonymous note and shooting out that window that no one would believe her and that everyone would just give up on, especially Jessica would give up on looking into the murder. So now she's even more sad. She's like, oh my goodness, she didn't even come to the funeral. You know, I really messed this up. So then we see where Jessica is. She is at the Grant household and she's speaking with Eric and Richard. So Eric is like, I didn't kill my sister. Like, I don't know how many times I got to tell you how many ways I did not kill my sister. And Jessica was like, well, maybe she wasn't pushed. Y'all keep saying she was pushed. Like maybe she tripped and fell into it. And Richard was like, well, she said she was beaten. So how did that happen? And Jessica says, well, Martin admits that he hit her a few times, but not that he murdered her. What? Wait, wait a second. (laughs) How are we glossing over the fact that Martin came home drunk, got into an argument with his wife, perhaps because he is drunk at nine o'clock at night on what appears to be a weeknight and they have a three-year-old child, okay? You get into an argument and you hit her a few times? Like not, he, you know, he struck her one. No, you shouldn't be hitting people, period. But like he was drunk. She, they were yelling. He slapped her and then stormed off to bed, you know, to to stop her from talking, which none of this is condoned. None of it. But a few times, Jessica, you say he, he's, he, hit, he admitted to hitting her a few times? But not killing her? Ma'am. Ma'am. A few times? To the point where she obviously had bruises on her face that they're like she was beaten to death. Which in fact she wasn't beaten to death. That The beating did not cause her death. But that's... Martin is... He's the water under a dumpster just like congealed stuff and water under a dumpster. Like you, anyway, so we'll probably get back to that in the end. We, we might get back to that. But anyway, so Jessica's like, who's JR? And Eric says, well, I have nothing really to tell. He was a drug dealer that morning of her death. I begged Lydia for the $3,000 I owed him. She refused. I went, I told JR that she refused to give me the money, which epiphany. Okay, girl. He threatened me. And so I went into hiding with my girlfriend. And so before we get into his description of JR, two things. One, how much drugs were you doing that you owed this man $3,000? Now, I don't know how much credit he extended to you because he knew that your family had money, money, like private jet money. Your sister and your father 
so I'm guessing that because Martin didn't have money. Martin wasn't wealthy. They claimed that he married Lydia for her money. So it sounds like he ain't have no money. But I'm wondering why, unless Eric was getting like, let's say an allowance or something like that from his father and he was doing high dollar, high quality or high amounts or all three of drugs that he was running through his allowance. And you know, he ain't had no job back then because he ain't got no job now and he's sober. So he was probably, he probably ran through all his money, but his father and his sister had money. So I can understand extending credit to a point but $3,000 in 1974, because remember, it's 16 years before and we're in 1990 at this point. So 1974, $3,000 that you owe to a drug dealer, there's not that much credit in the world. I don't know how many, how much money per day worth of drugs was he doing? That's wild because he wasn't selling drugs. He was doing drugs. Maybe he was doing both. Maybe he was, maybe he was buying enough to use and sell, but he was using more than he was selling. So that's why he was $3,000 in the hole. I don't know, but that man, I could not imagine him being alive owing $3,000 for personal use drugs in 1974. Wow. Okay. Because $3,000, not for nothing, that's a lot of money in drugs today. But in 1974 dollars, he had a bad addiction. He had a bad addiction. So my thing is, I would, I would believe that he done went back to try to get that money, try to steal it. Lydia caught him and he killed her. Um, but that's not what happened. But that would have been very believable. Okay, very believable. Because if you owe that much money on some personal use, even if you were selling, how much credit would he have extended to get you to a debt of $3,000? But anyway, so Eric then goes on to describe JR. Richard doesn't understand how, you know, that was 16 years ago. Like, how is this going to help? He's probably not even going to remember anything specific. But he said that Jr. was younger than him, younger than him, so probably about twenty-five. Had long dark hair, drove a blue Porsche, and had a bullet on his chain. He said that it was had a bullet on a chain, on a chain. That he was shot in Chicago by a cop, and it just missed his heart. So he kept it as a good luck charm. He said it happened at the convention riot in 1968 in Chicago. So Jessica is like, okay, well, that, that's a start. That's a start because it can't be too many. You know, there's records about that. There can't be too many incidences where that all happened. I was like, the blue, the blue Porsche would have been where I would have started, but that's just me. Okay. Like someone being admitted into a hospital in Chicago in 1968 for being shot in the chest. I I don't think that's as low of a number as you think it's going to be. 
Okay, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's gonna be as low <laughs> as you think. But the next scene, Jessica is at Brad's house. She's going to speak with him after having gotten this description from Richard and well, from Eric specifically. But he's not home, but she she speaks with his wife, Dorothy, and sees a picture of their son, Eddie, who it was his police academy graduation photo was on the table. Then Dorothy says, well, I, I don't know where he is if he's not at the office. So let me call um, to see if I can find him. And she's going to call his golf buddy because she's like, well, maybe he's playing golf. That's what she She's thinking, so she's going to call his golf buddy. So as she steps away to do that, Jessica's looking around and she sees another photo. Apparently, Eddie was on a basketball team and he has a chain around his neck that has a bullet on it. And she looks at his diploma, I think it is, and it says that he is a junior. And apparently Brad's first name is Edward. So they're both Edward Bradley folks. And so Eddie is a junior. Okay. J.R. Uh, you see where I'm going? Yes. So Dorothy comes back and said that um, he's not playing golf, but his golf buddy said that he had to go to a funeral this morning. So Jessica asked about the change. She was like, oh, it looks like there's a bullet on this. And Dorothy says, yes, he was almost killed in a hunting accident at 12 years old. And he keeps it, he kept it as a good luck charm. And Jessica asked, well, um, when, cause she had previously said that he died in the line of duty. So Jessica asked, oh, when did he, he die? And she, Dorothy says, it'll be 15 years exactly next March. So Jessica says, oh, I, I assumed he had died before. And so Dorothy's like, before what? And Jessica says, oh, nothing. Thank you for your time. I think I know where your husband is. And so Dorothy's like, you can stop by anytime, you know, blah, blah, whatever. So Jessica goes to the cemetery because obviously that we saw Brad at Hannigan's funeral. So now they're at the, uh, the cemetery, the the service is over. He has been laid to rest as Jessica's walking up and she stops to speak with Phyllis. She was like, oh, we didn't think you were going to make it. And she's like, oh, yeah, there was something I had to handle. Um, I'm glad it all went well. Um, have you seen Commissioner Folks? And she's like, yeah, he's over there. But why? She's like, oh, I'll tell you. I'll explain it later. So she goes over and Brad approaches her. It's like, hey, Jessica, like we, we thought that you weren't, we were wondering where you were, right? And she's like, oh, well, I spoke with Richard and Eric and um, I stopped by your house because I wanted to speak with you. Um, but I, you know, I was able to speak with your wife and um, we were looking at pictures of your son, Eddie. Well, she referred to him as Eddie, but I'm sure that his friends probably called him Junior, J.R. And Brad was like, what did you say to my wife? And Jessica says, nothing. I asked about the bullet on the chain because Eric remembered his J.R. had a bullet around his neck for good luck. 
So they're now walking towards where Eddie is buried. He's actually also buried in this cemetery. And so they, they stop and you see his headstone, which says Edward Bradley Folks Jr. And Brad says he was a, a good cop for five years, but basically he was an undercover for narcotics. And seeing what all was going around, it was difficult for him to fight being a good cop versus immersing himself in the drug dealer life, the money, the cars, the women. And so he, at some point, stopped fighting and fully emerged himself in that life. It seems like he also started doing drugs as well as selling them and keeping the money from them and et cetera, et cetera. And so Jessica says, oh, he became part of the mess he was trying to clean up. And so Brad says he went to the day of the murder. He went to confront Lydia about the money that Eric owed her, owed him that she refused to give him. And he was there when Martin came home drunk. So he hid. He then heard Martin assaulting his wife, like hitting his wife and then storm off upstairs. So Eddie assumed that if anything happened, that they would blame Eric, her brother, the drug addicted brother, I guess, or the husband, because the husband like literally beat her up and goes in like, okay, this is why I don't understand. This is what I don't understand. Like, he goes back into the living room where Lydia still is, right? He's like, has her grabbed up and he's like feeling her up and stuff like that. She's trying to struggle to get away. And I'm like, wait, are you, are you trying to assault her? Like that, they're not going to believe her brother did that. Like sexually assault her, not physically like beat her up more. But I'm like, how are you getting money out of her? Like, it's not like he had her in a headlock or was uh, restraining her or something like that. And like, give me the money, give me the money, give me the money. Like, it looked like he was trying to sexually assault her. Which I, which I don't understand how we got here. Okay. Because that's not going to get you the money. And it's not like, Well, we didn't hear what they were saying, but it didn't look like he was saying, give me $3,000 or I'm going to, you know, assault you. So like that, that was the one thing I have to say about this episode. I did not understand why he was doing this. So he's like, has her, you know, is holding her tight and is like feeling her up. And the look on his face looks like, hey, you know, let's get to business. And she's struggling to get free. Cause she's like, I don't know what this is about. Like, you know, and the thing is like, I don't understand why she didn't scream for her husband. I don't know. She might've just been in shock. I don't, I don't know. Cause the husband was drunk. Like he might've already been passed out by this time. So maybe she was, but that didn't even wake up her son. So I don't know. 
I really don't understand this scene. So she struggles to get away. She ends up freeing herself. They've knocked over the lamp and that was the flicker and the light going off that the neighbor saw. They're still struggling. She finally gets free, but she trips over the light, the lamp. No, she doesn't trip over the He pushes her. Like they're struggling, they're struggling. She's trying to get away. He seems to like let her go or pushes her. It's unclear as she stumbles back. And I think she does trip over the lamp and falls into the break front. And when I tell you the slow motion, they got this scream and the slow motion of her falling. And her husband is that drunk that he doesn't hear her scream. But the neighbor across the street does. Which is wild to me. Like that, that, but the, it didn't, okay. He, he could have been gone, gone, right? He, he's drunk. He passed out. He's gone. He don't hear nothing. But the three-year-old who's in the house doesn't hear his mother scream when she hits the break front. Like apparently she wasn't screaming before or they just didn't have, or she was, but nobody could hear that. Well, actually, no, I take that back. Well, actually, that doesn't make sense. Okay, so they said they heard, they saw the lamp flicker and go out. Then a few minutes later, they heard, or a few seconds later, really, they heard the glass break. But that would mean that they had to hear her scream too. Because the glass breaking definitely is not louder than that blood curdling scream that she gave. I Listen, but they it, that prompted them to call the police regardless. So maybe they did hear the scream. They just left that out of the recap, I guess. So she, so apparently when she hit the break front, she, I don't know. I'm guessing the glass like got her in the neck or something because she was like holding her neck when she was found dead. So, and as she was falling, she was kind of grabbing at her neck and turning into the fall. So I'm guessing that the glass front, the glass from it, that a piece or pieces like cut her neck. And that caused her to bleed out and die. So she's on the ground dying because she wouldn't have died that quickly. So dying. Now, Eddie, who is probably some level of drug intoxicated. Okay. Cause he, he out there sweating for real. So I don't know if he needed drugs or was coming down off of drugs um, and needed to get his next high or if he was high as a kite. I don't know. But he, this shocked him into some level of sobriety for the moment, at least. So he flees. Now, my question is, how were the windows and doors all locked if he 
fled the scene before the police arrived. Right. Right. That's why they thought it was Eric, because he probably had a key to the house. So I'm going to have to guess because they didn't let us know. I'm going to have to guess that whatever door Eddie left out of automatically locks and doesn't require a key to lock it. That's the only way this would have been possible. But if that was possible, that means anybody who came was allowed into the house, a maintenance man, anybody could have done this. But and who was she letting in in the middle of the night? But obviously she let, why would she even let JR in? To be honest, like if I went to the door and I saw this man who out here sweating with a chain with a bullet on it, look just out sweating in the middle of the night, I would not have let him in my house. Like I don't understand how, what the deal is. Was the front door unlocked and he just walked in the house and confronted her? What, did she let him in? Why would she let him in? Even if she knew him, that means that she knew that that was Eric's drug dealer. Why would she let him in her house? You know, this actually does not make sense. This actually does not make sense. Because, okay, you're going to tell me. Now, in order for this to have happened. This is the facts that they left out, right? So this means that Lydia or that, because obviously at this time of night, it's 9 p.m. Remember, it's 9 p.m. So let's say he got there at 8.30 p.m. Because he wasn't there for day. He didn't have dinner there and they weren't socializing. He came there to demand money. Now, mind you, they didn't hear this argument. The neighbor across the way did not hear the argument between Eddie and Lydia. Okay. So let's say he got there at 845. All right. He rings the doorbell at this late hour. They don't have staff. I promise you they don't have staff because if they had staff, they would have interviewed them. They said the only people in the house was the passed out husband the son, and then the deceased woman, Lydia. So they don't have staff. So that means that the doorbell rang. Stephen is in bed sleep. Lydia goes to open the door. And either Eddie pushes his way in or she lets him in, right? They get into an argument about money, And then the husband comes home, obviously driving drunk because how did he get home? So they must've heard the car pull up. Eddie hides. He doesn't flee out the back door. Where is his blue Porsche? So you're telling me like he parked up the street. He came down to this house got in, either pushed his way in when she opened the door or she let him in. 
when the husband comes home, now he doesn't know that the husband is drunk. He just hears the car pull up. She's probably like, that's my husband. And he doesn't flee. He just hides. Okay. He hides. Doesn't flee. He hides. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. Why would you say the man of the house is home? Okay. And he is bigger. He is a big guy. The husband, Martin. So he's home. You don't know he's drunk until he come in and she yelling at him or they're arguing about him being drunk. Okay. Probably driving drunk the whole nine. I would be yelling at him too. But you're hiding, listening to this. You're not trying to get out like the husband drunk or not. And you hear him like hit his wife several times. And at this point, you don't say, oh, I need to get out the back door. I need to run. Because even though you're younger than Martin, you don't know what size he is. You just hear him beating up his wife. And you don't think, you know what? I should leave. You you think in your drug-addled mind, I am going to get this money or some other thing from this woman and they're going to, and no one's going to know it's me? Like, I understand it's 1974. They don't have fingerprinting, like, technology and stuff like that, Um even though I'm sure his fingerprints would be on file, but I don't know if they would have checked the police officer's fingerprints because they would need them on file to be able to um, rule them out at a crime scene that that police officer worked at, right? So I... I don't know how, well, clearly he was on some sort of drugs, but like that doesn't, why wouldn't he have left? Like fight or flight, like this man drunk or not is bigger than you. And if he's willing to beat up his wife, you know, he's willing to beat up an intruder. Okay. So, which you are at this point and have been from the start, but he doesn't. So Martin goes on upstairs. Okay. After beating up his wife, then Eddie is going to come back out and then try to also assault her, but differently. You know what I mean? And like, he, this just doesn't mean, how are you going to get your $3,000? Like, why would a drug dealer... Go to the family of one of their addicts to demand money from them. That doesn't happen. Like, are you serious? Like, so you're going to go to his wife, his sister's house where she has a whole husband there. It's not like somebody's grandmother who lives alone and they go and they threaten the grandmother like, oh, your grandson better come up with this money or you better pay this money because the things will happen or whatever. I'm not saying that a drug dealer wouldn't threaten a family member, but I'm like, you're going to go to her house in her nice neighborhood. Okay. And 
then stay there after her husband has beaten her up and then try to victimize her again. How is any of that getting you $3,000? How is any of that ever going to get you $3,000? My thing is, if I'm in that big house and it's just me and my son and someone comes ringing the doorbell, I promise you I'm coming downstairs with a gun. We're not asking questions. Like a straight up gun. And like you you got to get the drop because if they start coming towards you, that no, I, I would not have answered the door. I would have come downstairs and stood probably 20 or 30 feet away from the door so they couldn't see me. But if they tried to break in, pow, pow. I'm saying you're a woman alone in this big house. Y'all don't have an alarm system. Y'all ain't got a dog. Y'all don't have staff. It's just you and your three-year-old son. Why are you answering the door at night anyway? Man or woman? Like, why are you answering the door? Like, I understand you don't have cell phones and stuff like that. And... Personally, if you're, if you know your husband, you didn't hear the car come up, right? So it's not even like, oh, I heard the car come into the driveway. Oh, it's probably my husband. He's probably drunk and dropped his keys. You know what I mean? Like, no, I don't understand how she would have opened the door. And if he barged in the house, why weren't you calling the police? The math ain't mathing. The math is not mathing because I don't understand why she would have ever let that man in her house. Okay. Because either you don't know who he is and you definitely shouldn't have him in your house. Two, if you know who he is, you definitely don't want to have him in your house. Because if you weren't giving your brother money, we're not sitting and talking and reasoning with a drug dealer. Okay. No. I surely would have been like, not answering the door, okay? Not answering the door with 911 on the line, okay? Talking about, there's somebody trying to get in my house at 8.30 at night, and it's just me and my small child here, okay? My husband has not come home yet. Police and the police. I live in wealthy neighborhood number two, okay? And I promise you the police would have been there ASAP. And we would have had none of this. But that's just me and my reasoning. Okay, me being reasonable and realistic that this doesn't make any sense. What would have made more sense is if Martin had gone upstairs and Eddie had never been there. Okay, Eddie slash JR would have never been there. And... She, having been, you know, beaten up, was trying to clean up because she didn't want her son to see this when he got up, ended up getting dizzy, tripping over the lamp, causing it to go out and stumbling into the break front. That would have made more sense. That would have made more sense. Or if her husband had come home drunk, 
beat her up, went upstairs, passed out, left the front door unlocked. And then JR comes in looking to steal the money and finds Lydia still downstairs trying to clean up, okay, or trying to pull herself together and gets, you know, and gets into a struggle with her demanding that she give him the money. She breaks away, falls and, and dies that way. That would have made more sense either or even Eric coming in after Martin has done that, leaving the front door unlocked. That's the, the important part, leaving the front door unlocked. Because if your front door doesn't automatically lock, then who locked the door when Eddie left? I don't think they thought about that. I think that they wrote the summary about what the, you know, that it was Martin. He was the only one in the house who could have done it. The whole house was locked up. But as the story developed, they decided that it was going to be JR slash Eddie. And that he, he was going to be the one who accidentally kills. Well, is it really accidental? Because you really were intending to do, commit a crime against uh, Lydia. That was not the crime you intended to commit, but you intended to commit a crime against Lydia. Okay. But once they figured out that's what they were going to do, they didn't realize that they did not explain the fact that the house was locked up, but you had a stranger in the house who committed this, this homicide. Yeah. Okay. 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 So back to present day. (laughs) I'm just like, it don't make sense. It does not make sense. And they could have made it make sense. That's what I don't understand. It would have been so easy to have one that the door, the front door automatically locks and somebody dropping that seed somewhere in this, like with Phyllis saying, they said the whole house was locked up, but the fact is the front door automatically locks when you close it. So anybody could have left through that door. Check mark, fix that hole. Two, it would have made sense that the drunk husband didn't close the door behind him, just walked in, probably being loud and belligerent with Lydia waiting there in the living room for him. Like, what, do you know what time it is? Our child is trying to sleep. Can you shut your face? Like, how are you going out getting drunk, spending my money, whatever, whatever that argument was. And him leaving the door open and JR planning to come in and steal to get the $3,000 because he needed to pay his people in order to get his next fix. That would have made more sense. But not how they wrote it, that homegirl let him in. They got into arguing that nobody else heard. Okay. Then he's hiding while her husband comes home for the night and then tries to assault her himself and ends up with her getting killed by 
I'm assuming the glass being cut up by the glass in the break front. And then leaving with the house completely locked up. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so now that Brad has told Jessica what happened, that the next day Eddie came home and came to him and was really distraught, was like it was an accident, it was all an accident. And that Brad already knew that Eddie was on that stuff and living the life of a drug dealer and drug user. But Dorothy, his wife and Eddie's mother had no idea. And it would have killed her to know that their son had, um, you know, become a, a drug, gotten deep into the drug world. So Jessica is like, but... So you knew this the whole time and you, it was easy to pin it on Martin and let him sit in prison for 16 years. And he's like, he was my son. Like what, you know? And so even though his son did, I don't know if this caused his son to um, get on the straight and narrow or... I'm wondering when they said he was killed in a raid, I'm wondering it because he was undercover. I'm wondering if he was still undercover. And when they busted in, he ended up accidentally getting killed by the police department. Um thinking that he, you know, not recognizing him, thinking that he was one of the scales or he tried to pull out a gun because he was just so messed up in the drug world um, that he ends up getting killed. And they just said, oh, was in the line of duty as if he was one of the people raiding the drug house. Or if he had cleaned up, had, you know, gone back, and told all that he knew so that they could get their cases together on said drug dealers that he was working for and with. And then they did a raid on there, on the the drug house. And someone recognized him on the drug dealer side and was like, oh, he's a rat, he's a cop, and killed him. So I don't know which whether he was clean and he was working again with the police to do the raid and ended up getting killed by someone who recognized him as, oh, he obviously had to be undercover because he's a cop and killed him. Or if he was just still steeped in the life and when the police busted in, he pulled out a gun, pulled out a weapon or tried to attack them in some way and ended up, being killed by fellow officers. And they just made it sound like, because he was technically, if he was still undercover, he was technically killed in the line of duty. But leaving out the fact that he was fighting on behalf of the drug dealers. So I don't know, that would have been interesting to find out. But, you know, it's only a 47-minute show without commercials. So Jessica is like... Yeah, okay. 
great. So she goes to walk away. He's like, what are you going to do? He was like, she was like, I'm going to tell the truth. He's like, to who? Who's going to believe you? And she was like, Richard Thompson Grant may believe me. Maybe he won't. Maybe the police will believe me. Maybe they won't. But the truth has to come out. And so, you know, Brad is basically begging her not to because this would kill Dorothy. She's all I have. You know, she's not going to be able to deal with this. And then Mr. Dolan, who was at the funeral, who is not important until now, for real. Like, even though he put like some Irish whiskey in Hannigan's pocket in the <laughs> in the casket and was like, put in a good word for me. <laughs> okay. But the thing is, first he was like, I don't know where you're going to end up. So you want him to, if he don't, if he don't make it to heaven and he make it to hell, you want him to put in a good word? You should at least been like, I know you're making it to heaven. Put in a good word for me. Okay. Because <laughs> he was serious about that. Like, sir, don't be like, I don't know where you're going to go, but wherever you go, put in a good word for me. Like, if we go be in hell, we be in hell together. But at least we be in the VIP suite. I don't know. But anyway, so he comes over and he's like, oh, Jessica, are you okay? And she's like, yes, I'm fine. He's like, oh, would you like a, a ride? She's like, oh, yes, thank you. And like, Brad's not going to do anything like outrageous. He he just like lets go of her arm and is standing there like basically, um, just looking dejected. And so she walks over to Mr. Dolan. She's like, thank you. Can you drop me off at police headquarters? He's like, sure. So he turns around, he gives her his arm and they walk off. And that's how it ends. Now I'll, I'll have to say this. Like I thought, like I said before, that um, Jessica expected Brad to tell the truth. Right. But no, she actually is going to go and tell the truth. But at the end of the day, because that has to come out, like it has to come out that Eddie was on drugs. And that's why he was in that house. Because he needed the money that Eric owed him so that he could pay off whoever he needed to pay off and that he could get drugs for himself as well. And that he wasn't in his right mind when he was doing that. But that means that the mom has to find out. Like it was an accident, you know, even though he was in that house to commit a crime because either he was gonna steal the money or he was going to threaten her to give him the money. So like stealing as in just picking up items or cash and running out versus threatening a a person and getting that money from that person. So it would have to come out. I think, and it's also not going to be good for the commissioner because he knew and covered it up because he found out the day after the murder and The lieutenant, well, Bert, was transferred to South Philly. We don't know why, because it wasn't at the request of Brad. Um, But when the opportunity opened up, Brad was like, okay, 
I will volunteer to take this, to investigate. And it was easy to put it on Martin. Now, I honestly, when he told Jessica, he should have said that um, Eddie was hiding. When he came back out of hiding, um, Lydia saw him. And in trying to back away from him, tripped over the lamp, stumbled back and hit the brake front and he ran out and that, and that would have been it. Right. But the fact that they struggled and stuff like that, that's not going to look good. Now, Eddie has died, but it obviously the mother would feel some type of way. Like you knew about this and you didn't tell me. And it tarnishes her memory of her son. But the fact is, he unfortunately was a drug addict and he, uh, his actions resulted in the death of someone. Now, am I mad that Martin was in prison for 16 years? It depends. Now, if he had regularly been abusing his wife 16 years is too good for him. He should be in there for 25. But if he, if this was the first time, he definitely needed to be in prison for a taste. A good two years, a good two years. Cause like the nerve that you out here drunk and drinking, it don't sound like you have a real job. You living off of my daddy's money, not even my money, my daddy's money. And you got the nerve to be violent and we had a three-year-old child who's trying to sleep upstairs and you coming in here belligerent and you have the nerve to assault me? Oh, hell no. You need to go to prison for a good, a cool two years. More. But it's 1974, so he ain't going to prison for real. Like, he wouldn't have gone to prison. Like, her dad had money, but that was, I don't know. I don't know. He might have gone if she had if she hadn't died and he had assaulted her, this is Martin, that is. As she called the police, because her father had money and status, yeah, I think he might have gone, he might have just gone to local jail. I don't know if he would have got prison time, depending on how powerful Richard was. But I think that's the only way he would have seen behind the bars for any period of time is because Richard Thompson Grant had some level of power and influence, you know, regardless of the fact that there were other people in abusive situations that wasn't, there wasn't a point to call the police because they're like, oh, you're married or whatever, you know, why were you arguing with him when he was drunk? Like, what did you expect? Unfortunately. So, I'm not mad, especially if he was abusive. 16 years, I don't care, rot, rot, I don't care. The fact that you just nonchalantly was just like, yeah, so I hit her a few times or whatever, but I didn't kill her. What? Thank you for being honest about that. Like, I don't, I don't understand. (laughs) I was that, okay, you needed to be in prison. But I'm not mad that he was in prison for 16 years. I'm really not. No, it sounds like he was a terror. So no, not sad about that. Um, The only person I feel bad for is, no, I don't 
know. Like, well, the grandson felt like they were hiding stuff from him at this point, which I don't think they really were. Like he knew that his uncle was, had a bad drug addiction when he was younger, like a toddler, um, that he was able to beat it. Um, and has been, seems to have been sober for the past 15 years. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know. He, it seems like he had a good life. He didn't have his mother, which is the saddest part. Um, he didn't have his father, which clearly was a good thing because honestly, it sounds like Martin was a bit of a monster that obviously Phyllis as his sister did not know that of him, did, would not expect that. But I think it would have been more realistic if she was like, listen, he wasn't an angel at all. He wasn't, but he's not a murderer. Cause it didn't seem like they were even considering the fact that he physically abused his wife before she happened to die that day. So like y'all making it seem like, oh, this is just such an injustice. Like granted, he needed some prison time because he he was out there beating her up, um, which is terrible. And he needs to be punished for that, but not for murder. He did not murder her. And at the end of the day, it wasn't murder. Maybe, mm, maybe some level of manslaughter. I don't know. It's also Pennsylvania. I'm not familiar with their laws. And it definitely was like 1974 when that happened. So who knows what the the laws were back then. But yeah, no one wins in this situation. And I, I don't know. I feel kind of bad for Brad. Like he... He shouldn't have covered it up, but not for nothing. Like I said, I'm not mad that Martin went to prison. Good for him. But Brad, his son, who was his legacy, they weren't able to have any other children. His junior, you know, passed down from generation to generation. He became a police officer. He was a good police officer. And, you know, this happened that his life ended, you know, tragically, but right before that, he had been responsible for however many people because he was selling drugs for real. He was doing drugs for real, not just undercover, you know, scheduled, videotaped and, you know, fully uh, controlled situations. He was living wild and free. OK, and I'm sure that Brad felt some level of guilt like, I don't know if he told his son, like, you shouldn't go into narcotics. Like, I understand, you know, you may not want to be one of the brass, you know, you may not want to be the commissioner or a deputy commissioner or a lieutenant or something like that. Maybe you want to be a detective. Maybe you want to work in homicide and you think this is your way. It's not. I know you want to get from under me, like, and, you know, make your own name, for yourself and not like, oh, that's because his dad is the deputy commissioner. I understand that, but narcotics is very dangerous. I don't know. I, you know, I kind of feel like he did have that conversation with his son, but his son was an adult and, you know, had to make his own career choices. 
And Brad probably feels that I should have tried harder to get him out and away from the narcotics undercover because I knew what was going to happen. I prayed that it didn't, but I knew what could happen and it happened. So that's that on that. This was a very long review. (laughs) I promise you I was an hour in. I'm like, oh, this is going to wrap up soon. (laughs) I don't know where that other hour came from. Anyway, so until next time, you can find me on Instagram at the Fletcher Files pod on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook meta at the Fletcher Files pod on Facebook meta. And of course, in the description box is the link to my Patreon. If you're not into it, get into it. Okay. The content of it all. Yes. Okay. (laughs) I just put up a review the week after Thanksgiving for A Fatal Feast. That was a good book. Okay. That one. I, those of you who are on my Patreon know I have my issues with the Murder, She Wrote novel series, but A Fatal Feast was a good one. Okay. It was. So in two weeks, we will be talking about the family jewels. Yes. Cause tis the season. Okay. <laughs> For me not to work every week. Okay. <laughs> Until next time you have an amazing two weeks and I will do the same. Until then. Bye.